0: You may have heard the story of uh, two children who were talking. One was just in preschool, the other was in second grade, and the second grader said to the preschooler, what have you learned lately? And the preschooler said, I just learned how to spell cat. And the two, or the second grader said, well, stop right there because it gets a lot tougher after that. That's how it is uh, walking with Jesus sometimes. I have a friend who said every time a pagan gets cancer, a Christian gets cancer so the world can see the difference. Every time those who don't know Christ lose a 12-year-old, a 12-year-old of believing parents may be lost to us so that the world and we can see the difference. Last few weeks we've been talking about Jesus' resurrection and his post-resurrection appearances. Can you think of any more relevant texts in all the Bible to focus on than the post-resurrection accounts that Jesus could say, in essence, boys, I told you, Don't you dare let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. But it isn't easy, especially when you're connected, as Tim said, to family. Last three weeks I've had uh, the privilege of learning and relearning a bunch of lessons, and I want to talk about that today. It's relevant. You know, before the service, uh, we talked, Barrett and Jerry and Car- and uh, Tim and I and others. What would God have us do? I think he'd have us worship him. I guess if we were talking about light stuff today, we would have abandoned it to talk about real stuff today, but we were planning to talk about real stuff that has a direct correlation to all that's happened in the past 24 hours. One other prelude point, last night Tim and I were leaving the almhouse and <clears throat> Jim took us aside and Jim's been in a grove uh, that I've been privileged to attend this last year, really. It's breaking all grove rules. (laughs) Guys staying together. Of course, new folks come. But he said, uh, you know, since coming to that grove, you know, guys are sharing about what the Lord means to them and what's gone on in their lives. And, And then he said, you know, a few years ago, I used to sit in the back of the church, and I heard you guys teach and preach the Word. And the Lord changed me. That's what the Lord does with His Word. I'm just so glad that the Lord chose this time in Jim and Diane's life. To give them this kind of blessing, we do know it'll be a blessing. Chapter 21 of John's Gospel. Remember, this is the passage that follows the one Tim preached last week. When the disciples and Jesus had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these. Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Excuse me. Yesterday it was allergies. Today it's Holly. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, Follow me. It's been three weeks since I've been able to preach at Hebron, three weeks since Easter Sunday morning, and in that time, as I mentioned, I've relearned a lot of lessons In that time, three funerals, three weddings. But in that time, I've relearned some lessons. I've relearned what divine compassion looks like. Over 300 cards and emails and letters from you on the occasion of my father's death. I've learned what it means when Jesus said, I'll supply all of your needs by my riches and glory. My mother's big concern before the memorial service would be, would there be any flowers? I said to her, Mom, you said no flowers. <laughs> memorial gifts. We get into the chapel, and minutes before, two huge bouquets of flowers and vases arrive from friends that are north of the city. I've learned what Jesus meant when He said He'd stick closer to us than a brother. When I got up to speak, <clears throat> I looked out at about 250 people, and there in the crowd were four guys from Hebron that together traveled over 3,000 miles to be part of that service. I relearn what Jesus meant when he said love one another as I've loved you you know people did so much and continue to do so much for me and for my family would you believe a couple cut my grass twice (laughs) there's been a lot of lessons in the last 21 days thank Katrina for these (laughs) but perhaps the most profound to me in the last week has had to do with tying knots. Before my father's memorial service, my 10-year-old nephew came over with his tie in his hand and he said, my dad told me to come to you to tie it. And I looked him in the eye and I said, well, Daniel, what do you want? A Pratt knot? A forehand knot? A full Windsor or a half Windsor? And he looked at me like, "What's wrong with you?" Have you ever had that look? I get it all the time. But I said, "You know, Daniel, if if you want a half Windsor or a full Windsor, they're different." He said, "I, I said I, I sort of prefer the uh, the half Windsor, especially if you have a tab collar." You see, you. Just do it like this, and it produces a a particular uh, kind of knot that uh, is a little smaller than a, a full Windsor. And you can just put it up like that, and you make sure that it's not too long like it is there. So you get the idea about tying a knot. And the reason my brother sent him to me was because he knew that I wear a tie almost all the time. One of the things I appreciate about Richard Nixon is even after he left the presidency and lived in a condo in New York, when they took long-range pictures of him, he was in a tie, seemed to wear a tie all the time. The reason my brother sent him to me was because he knew that knowing how to tie a tie involves knowing a body of data, information, being able to follow certain procedures, you know, when it comes to the Bible and biblical truth, there are a lot of people who think of it like tying a tie. That there's a preaching and teaching is just sort of a data dump. You know, you, you've got the stuff and, and you deliver it. It's all for your head. But you know something? When the Father sent His Son to me, it wasn't so that I might master data. It was so that He and His Word would master me. John Calvin said the Scriptures are a pool into which a toddler can wade and an elephant can drown. Knowing the Word of God is not like knowing your multiplication tables. It's a living Word of an infinite God who wants to engage our minds and our hearts and our souls and our spirits so that He might transform us. Thirty years ago at Princeton, I had a 60-year-old homiletics professor that's preaching Now, never forget the first day of class, he said, gentlemen, because that's all that we were there in this class, just gentlemen, he said, gentlemen, in the last couple of years, I've been learning about the unique, distinctive perspectives of each gospel writer. And I thought to himself, in the last few years, what have you been doing for the last 30 years that you've taught here? Didn't they hire you because they knew that believed that you knew everything? The answer is no. There is no institution that has been organized and chartered to for people to study the Word of God who don't understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who is living and active and he reveals to believers more and more of his word. The Scriptures and God's truth are like an onion. You peel a layer and you think, I got it! And then you realize there's another layer. But God's truth, His Word, is not just like an onion because an onion has a last layer. This side of heaven will never get to that last layer. He is an infinite God. And you can read a passage a thousand times, and on the very next time, you can see truth that you've never seen before. In the 16th century, John Calvin understood that there are four Gospels, and as an attorney, he determined that he would harmonize those Gospels. He'd, he'd smooth out the rough edges. He, he would eliminate any problems. And if you, even today, you can order Calvin's commentary series, and you can look when he gets to the Gospels, he calls it the harmonization of the Gospels. And by harmonizing, by bringing them all together, synthesizing them, he misses a lot. The reason the Holy Spirit gave us four Gospels is because when it comes to Jesus Christ, it requires at least four different perspectives. They're very different, these Gospels. Did you know that there are eight post-resurrection appearances of Jesus encounters with people. Luke has two of them. Matthew has three of them. Mark arguably has none of them. John has three. And if you know anything about John, you know that he loves numbers. The reason he loves numbers is because all of the cultures The Hebrew culture, the Roman culture, the Greek culture of the day understood that numbers mean things. And one of the numbers that John loves is the number three. Because he knew what Luke knew, who was writing to a largely Gentile audience, that three meant something significant. What three means when you have a a series is that the third is the most significant preeminent. One and two are a drum roll for number three. Let me give you an example. Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells three parables in a row. Three parables of what it means to be lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost sons. Which of those parables is the most preeminent? The story of the man who had two sons, both of whom are lost. And so what does John do when he comes to the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus? He gives us three of them. Two of them in chapter 2, or chapter 20. Jesus appears to Mary. Then he appears to Thomas. And then in chapter 21, he appears to Peter. And this appearance on the beach to the other disciples, but primarily to Peter, is the most preeminent, the most profound, because it has the most relevance to every growing disciple. And you know something? Until the last two weeks, I never saw it as plainly as I do now. And that shouldn't surprise us, because God is in the business of revealing Himself. His greatest desire for you and me is that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it always has three components. Knowledge, agreement, trust. Jesus desires that we might know him, that we might agree with him, so that we might trust him. That's what we see in this text. So let's dig in. First of all, notice on the beach the link. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee, he revealed himself in this way. Now, this isn't the first time that we see Peter in a fishing boat on this same lake fresh out of fish. Three years earlier in Luke chapter 5, Jesus gets into the boat, says to Peter, put out from the shore. Jesus teaches when he's finished. He says to Peter, put out a little further, cast your net, let down your nets. That command comes exactly in the same set of circumstances. They have fished all night and they've been totally futile in their effort. Professional fishermen catch nothing. And Luke says, Jesus says to Peter, put down your net, and they catch a catch that is so great that Luke says, Peter falls on his knees in the hull of the boat, and he says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, why would Peter say that? Because in the presence of the catch, he comes to see the profound truth Of two things, the presence of God and the presence of his own sin. And notice what his sin causes him to do. His sin causes him to say to Jesus the Lord, depart from me. Notice what his sin causes Jesus to do. Draw near to him. I mean, isn't that fascinating? Our sin causes us to want to run from Jesus. That's the bad news. The good news is when Jesus sees our sin, he runs to us. He says to Simon in the boat, Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And instantly, Luke says, Peter and the others leave their boats and they follow Jesus. Do you see the link here? Same boats, same lake, same feudal night, same Lord showing up. Second, notice, if you will, the light. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Now, light means a lot to John. When he describes Jesus' birth, he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. When he talks about the risen Lord Jesus, he says, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. He does it here. Just as day was breaking, another translator says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shoreline. Now think of that. It's daytime. It's daybreak. It's a new day. The light of the world is there, and yet for Peter, it is as dark as dark can be. Dark in what way? Not only is it dark in terms of fish, it's dark in terms of following. Not only has he failed to catch fish, he's failed his Lord in his darkness. In some ways, a greater darkness than he knew in Luke 5. He has not only failed at fishing, he's failed at following. But John says, early in the morning, as day was breaking, Jesus breaks into his darkness. then third, notice, if you will, the lavishness. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with the fish laid out on it and bread. Now, think of what this means. This means that during Peter's darkest hour, Jesus, the light of the world, has been busy. Jesus has caught out, gone out and caught his own fish, he's got the charcoal ready. He's got the bread there. He starts a fire. In fact, the Bible says, John says, when they get to shore and come, along, come to Jesus on shore, Jesus says to them, why don't you go get some of your fish that you've caught? Ladies and gentlemen, even those fish are Jesus' fish. If Jesus hadn't enabled them to catch them, they'd be fishless doesn't that profoundly support what Jesus had told them a week earlier? Without me, you can do nothing. The fire reminds Peter of his failure in that courtyard around the fire. The bread reminds Peter of the broken body on the cross. Throughout all of Scripture, fire generally indicates divine judgment. And yet, notice what is greater than the fire here. It's the catch of fish. What do the fish symbolize? His grace. His grace is always greater than his judgment. Then fourth, notice the love. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these Now, Luke has told us that right after the Lord's Supper, a dispute breaks out among the disciples as to who is the greatest. And Luke says that Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, notice what he doesn't say. Jesus does not say to Simon Peter at that moment. He doesn't say, "Simon, I prayed that you wouldn't fall." He says, "I've prayed that your faith would not fall, fail." Why? Because Jesus knows that Peter must fall. He knows that unless Peter falls, he will continue to rely on what he's relied on all of his life. His own self-concept, his own self-consciousness, his own confidence in his flesh. Jesus calls him by his old name, Simon, son of John. Do you love me unconditionally? That's what Jesus is asking here in the first question. Do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Why does Jesus ask him that question? Why does he say in essence, do you love me unwaveringly? Do you love me without a shadow of turning? The very question he asks. Confronts Peter with his own sin. Do you see, Peter? Do you see with your own eyes? Do you see with your own mind, your own heart, your own soul, your own spirit that you, under your own strength, in, under your own self confidence, will only fail? Do you see that? Do you have a choice to make? Do you see you have a choice to make? Either you're going to trust in yourself or you're going to trust in me. Do you love me unconditionally? Simon answers, Yes, Lord, you know that I have brotherly love for you. He knows he doesn't agape him. He knows he only filios him. He only loves him with brotherly love. And you know that question is the question Jesus asks us every day of our lives, especially today in light of Holly's passing. Will you trust me and my strength and my wisdom and my power, or will you continue to trust yourself? Then fifth and finally, notice the lesson. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me with brotherly love? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus changes the word. Do you love me with brotherly love? Do you love me like a brother? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Do you see what he's doing here? He's reissuing the call. Three years earlier, near a boat on the same lake, with the same futility through the night, with the same catch of fish, Jesus calls Peter to be a fisher of men and to follow him. But now he's changing the call. He doesn't call him here to fish for men. He's calling him now to feed his sheep, to tend them. And you know something? That always requires us to have more skin in the game. Forty years ago. When my father worked for the Christian Broadcasting Network, there was a man there, I can't remember his name, but he was there for every telethon, he was there for almost every broadcast, and he was always on a phone, part of the phone bank. People would call in, he would tell them about Jesus, they would pray the sinner's prayer, he'd hang up the phone, reach into his pocket, pull out a little black book, take a pen, and put a little hash mark in his book. Now I'm 16 at the time, and I'm looking at this guy who's old. I mean, he's at least 50. And I come up to him after seeing him do this a few times. Say, "What are you? What, what are you doing with that black book?" He said, "Oh, this black book. Every time I I lead somebody to Christ, I I mark it down as another fish that I've caught." I said, do you know him? Do you know anything about him? Do you care about him? Do you want to know him? He said, no, Jesus called me to fish. And I thought, really? I could imagine Peter saying that. Until he meets Jesus on the beach that morning. In all of his self-confidence, in all of his bravado, I could see him going from the other post-resurrection accounts and simply casting a net and catching men. Leading people to Christ and then saying, see you later. We call it catching and releasing. But here on the beach, Jesus changes the call. He says, I call you to feed and to tend and to love my sheep. How do we miss that? How do we think that spiritual growth involves receiving a body of information and mastering it, like like tying a knot? Where do we get the notion that Walking with Jesus Christ is just something that you do by rote or or by procedure. You've got a data dump, and you got it all up here. Jesus never calls us to that. He calls us to know with our minds and our hearts and our souls and our spirits. He calls us to agree with what we know. And then he calls us to trust. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a messy endeavor. You know why it's messy? Because everything in our human flesh says rely on yourself. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I see my own sin, my own weakness, my own waywardness. And if all he called me to do was fish, I think I could simply do that under my own power. But he doesn't call a growing disciple only to fish. He calls us to get into people's lives. It's a greater call. It's a deeper call. It's a more intimate call. It's a call to feed and to tend. It's a a call that demands more than simply a word or a a prayer or a hash mark. It demands our time. It demands our honesty. It demands our compassion. It demands self-disclosure. Jesus changes Peter's call from simply catching men to feeding them, tending them. You know what else I saw this week? That that's exactly what Jesus does. In John chapter 13, he changes his mission from ministry to the world to ministry to his own. Remember what John 13 is? He gets down on his knees with a towel and a basin and begins to wash their feet. That's what he calls us to do. He calls us to put ourselves in a position where the Holy Spirit begins to tie unbreakable knots between you and other sheep of His fold. Does He ever call us to stop fishing? No. But around that table, in John 13, He begins a more intimate, a deeper a greater, more costly call of anyone who will follow Jesus. It's a call that will never end, and that's the call to love each other, to be honest with each other, to be accountable to each other, and to tend each other, and to bear each other's burdens, and to love each other as Jesus has loved us. It's only been in the last few weeks that I've put those two texts together, Luke 5, John 21. Now I'll never forget it. Because growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus requires not only being called to fish, it requires being called to feed and to tend and to love those the Holy Spirit catches and brings into your life. If you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus. There is no one that is in your life that is there by accident. It's true for the alms. It's true for us. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. May we do so. Amen.